This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Every job has been affected, it seems, by COVID-19, whether it means the demand, whether it means the way that it is taking place. I think we need to take a minute and focus in on truck driving because this is absolutely essential. It's been dealing with closed borders. It's been dealing with other issues since the pandemic began. And we're really lucky to have with us Al Goodhall, who is a truck driver. Al, thank you, first of all, for what you do, because I don't think we take enough time to appreciate the hours, the challenges, and all of the things that come with driving trucks. So thanks for doing what you do. Oh, I really appreciate that, Mike. Thanks. Let's go back to when everything began, just so we can get a benchmark of how things changed, and then maybe we can look at how things are going now. When things began and the border closed and different restrictions came in, what did that mean for drivers? <laughs> well, it, it meant that everything was just up in the air. We, we didn't know what was going to happen, uh, just like everybody else, right? And um, what we found at first that was that, first of all, there's no traffic on the road. Restaurants closed down. Uh, guys were having a hard time finding somewhere to get a shower, washrooms to use. Just really basic stuff like that, you know. That all got cleaned up in the first few weeks, but um, everything was just no, totally up in the air. Nobody really was sure where this was all going to go. So, and then time started to pass, and like you say, some of the washroom issues were, could we call it resolved or just improved? Um improved and partially resolved too it's a lot better in the u.s believe it or not because they have a lot better infrastructure as far as travel plazas goes and what we have when we travel through northern ontario or something like that where, where facilities are really limited you know unfortunately in ontario we're still dealing with uh porta potties all over the place right as opposed to you know hot and cold running water and a, a clean clean facilities to use but um, that's been the nature of the beast in Ontario for a lot of years before COVID had it just um, COVID just amplified the problem and, and brought it into the light, actually, which was sort of talking a with thing. Al Goodhall. Yeah. Al, tell us a little bit about how things are now. Are, are there still major challenges that you're dealing with? It, it's almost business as usual out there. Um, the major challenges are psychological because, um, you know, I, li- I like to say that 90% of my job was like, uh, you know, I'd sort of be, um, I guess the easiest way to put it is, is I'd sort of revel in the solitude for 90% of the time and wallow in the loneliness for the other t- 10% of the time, right? But now with COVID and everything being closed up, I spend most of my time in the truck, eating in the truck. Um, you know, making coffee in the truck. Uh, I've really isolated myself through this whole thing. So that loneliness factor really comes into play. You know, you, you wouldn't think so when you're out there driving around the whole time, but uh, that's really been playing on me the last month or two. No doubt. And yeah. is there anything you can do about that? I mean, we think back to to 
BJ and the Bear in the 70s and uh, and all of the walkie-talkie conversations that would go on. Does that kind of thing still exist in any way, or is that kind of gone by the wayside? Most of it has gone by the wayside. When we get out in the sticks, like when you're out on the open highway, there's still a, like we still have the CBs in the trucks and stuff like that, but it's used mostly now for, you know, if you're in bad weather conditions or something like that, because uh, most of us are on our phones now, right? So um, if you want to communicate, uh, you don't have that wide open communication of the CB that we used to have in the past. Uh, a lot of people just don't use it. But uh, now, Al, do you feel because we have seen attention at times on the trucking industry and you mentioned that there were challenges that existed even before COVID. Do you feel anybody's kind of taking note and writing down, OK, here are some things that maybe we need to address. Is that out there at all? Yeah, it is out there. there there's some good organizations out there. Um, uh, like, for example, the Women's Trucking Federation of Canada was started by a, uh, a female driver, someone that I know well, and it, she's working for all drivers, not for just women. So there, there's a lot more activity in the driver ranks, you know, to try and make improvements to things like infrastructure, like just to bring them to light the government and uh, to governing bodies to to do something about, um, you know, the working conditions out there on the road. In the meantime, aware. it's still a, a pretty solitary couple of weeks, months. We don't really know, you know, how long this may stretch. Are you hearing that from any other drivers? Have you been able to talk with anybody else about maybe uh, how to combat this in any way, or is it just something you have to deal with? I think it's just something you have to deal with. I'm I'm geared up for another year of this at least. Um, I think you have to look that far ahead. You know, you you can't expect that things are going to change in a couple of months. And um, who I really feel for are the guys that are independent operators. You know, I've seen a lot of those guys. I'm, I'm an employee, so, you know, I work for a reputable company and I have that support behind me. But uh, the guys who are independent businessmen running their own trucks, it's uh, tough out there. I've seen a lot of those guys right now have uh, looked for company jobs. You know, they're, they're, the cross-border traffic isn't what it used to be, and it's hard for them to find loads and keep the cash flow moving. So they've got all that to deal with on top of the COVID-19 protocols that we all have to follow now as well, right? So, um, yeah, the, there's so much variability in the trucking industry and the different work that we do uh different jobs that we do, long haul, dedicated, local, specialty, heavy haul. Like, it's a little bit different for everybody. So it's hard to pin down that, you know, truck driving is any one specific problem. There's just, uh, it's all over the board. Well, at least it sparks some conversation. And like you say, there are organizations and agencies who can look at this and say, if we're going to do a review, now's a good time to do a review. Al Goodhall joining us as we talk about driving truck. Al, one last thing, and that is, I think the border. People wonder what it's like getting through the border. Are there more restrictions than there used to be? Is it a, a bigger challenge? Is it, is it the same? How would you term it? Um, basically the same. Uh, the border's always been pretty seamless. That's uh, one good thing about um, technology because everything is pre-cleared, like everything is set up on computer. We're all 
everything's tied together, you know, my personal information to the truck, to the carrier, to the shipper, you know, so uh, border authorities on both sides have all that information before you get there. So it's as simple as scanning a barcode on a document and away you go most of the time. Um, it hasn't added to any additional inspections or anything like that, other than the, you know, typical COVID questions we all get, you know, do you have a cough? Do you have a fever? Have you been in contact with anybody who has COVID? Uh, just those basic screening questions, right? Well, we really appreciate this, Alan, helping to paint a picture of, of what things are like and some of the challenges that you are dealing with. You can always call into the show. If you, uh, if you need somebody to talk to, give us a call here, and uh, we'll talk trucking again. Hey, that sounds good. I really appreciate <laughs> you uh, taking the time, Mike. Thanks very much. Well, Al, we really appreciate you describing what it's like. Stay safe on the roads, all right? You betcha, man. Thank you. That's Al Goodhall, truck driver. As we look at how the industry was as things began, some of the challenges that exist, and as Al says, one of the toughest things now is simply the solitude. You're not going into those rest stops. You're not dealing with people. He's, he's making coffee in the truck. He's eating in the truck. Everything's done in the truck, and... There are a lot of jobs like that where it's now just you and it's difficult to kind of put into perspective what that's like over and over again, day after day, until you are going through it. So thanks to Al for that. What do Toronto, Chatham, Dryden, Halliburton, Kitchener-Waterloo, Kawartha Lakes... Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury, Thunder Bay, Windsor, and London and St. Thomas have in common. That's a lot of places. Trees, roads, people, COVID-19. Sure, all of those things. But they also have protests and information sessions in common that were held across the province today, calling on the Ford government to take immediate action to address a staffing crisis and deal with other concerns in long-term care. And this is something that has been an issue from the outset. This is something that has been an issue for years and years. And all the pandemic has done is expose some of the issues in long-term care, the staffing issues that exist, some of the other problems that are just waiting for something like COVID-19 to come along that now become exacerbated by what has taken place. So we will talk about that in just a moment. There are calls right now, I can tell you, for Jeff Goldblum to show up on Saturday Night Live this week to play the role of the fly again and be on Mike Pence's head in a sketch. I don't know whether they can make that happen in short order during a pandemic or whether Jeff Goldblum would do it. Jeff Goldblum came up the other day because we were talking about in movies how scientists would warn and be asking people to uh, to watch out for asteroids or whether it's viruses or whatever. And Jeff Goldblum would come up a lot. I mean, look at the movies that he has been in. He's been in Independence Day. That's definitely a big one. Uh, so he was playing that role, certainly in, in Independence Day. 
Uh, he was in the fly, so that he wasn't kind of warning anybody of that, but but involved in that same sort of you know that same sort of scientific realm. So Jeff Goldblum must lead the way in in all of those. I wasn't able to find too many. I mean, he's been in a lot of movies, and Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie. That wasn't one where he was playing a scientist at all, or Faye Grimm. No, not not in science at all. But Jeff Goldblum, if you're out there and you're able to recapture, reinvent your role of the fly, it might give us a few seconds of a COVID break on Saturday on Saturday Night Live. Earlier today, it was about getting a message across and trying to make sure that we're still paying attention to long-term care. We mentioned some of those cities, Toronto and Dryden and Kawartha Lakes and Sault Ste. Marie and London St. Thomas. And joining us right now is someone who can help us to understand what was taking place and what the call is for, because this is certainly a concern we all need to have. It's certainly a concern that existed a long time ago and has not gone away. Joining us is Peter Bergmanis, who is a spokesperson for the Ontario Health Coalition. Peter, thanks for taking some time for us. Thank you for taking some time for this important message, Mike. 24 towns across Ontario had a day of action. Information session, protests, uh, call it what you want to. What was it that you wanted people to know from this action? We wanted Ontarians to recognize that uh, despite what the Ford government is saying publicly, there's been very to no action at all taking place on the ground. And we're very concerned that no lessons were learned from the initial wave and this next part of the pandemic is going to prove to be even worse because we have not stabilized the staffing and long-term care. One of the things that we heard from the province, and I think this painted a really powerful picture of something because we would hear Ontario Premier Doug Ford saying it, and that was, we're putting an iron ring around long-term care homes, and he has personal ties to long-term care homes, and you just picture that, okay, well, we're going to get an iron ring around those homes, and and that leaves you, if you're not directly affected or not directly tied to anyone in a long-term care home, that leaves you thinking, don't worry, that, that iron ring is around it. Have we seen really much change in the way that long-term care homes are operating if we go back to April and then fast-forward until now? Regrettably, there is very little uh, consequence that's been changed. His iron ring is more of a ring of sponge, and it's so porous that there's been very little we can say that's improved. I, I can tell you that I also work in uh, long, in, not in long-term care, but in health care, and uh, have connections to long-term care. And I, I'd like to see where this evidence is that... Uh, we've done anything better we're still relying on a lack of ppes and there's still no stable workforce because they still can't get full-time work they're still struggling to find enough hours of work to make a living and that right there is difficult to hear and i think it sheds light on a problem that likely existed long before the pandemic 
You're quite correct. We were raising this alarm uh, quite quite a while ago. Actually, uh, last year, a report came out from the Health Coalition actually stipulating that, listen, if we don't start buttressing those full-time PSW jobs, we're going to be having a real crisis down the road. And unfortunately, that's come to pass. Peter Brickman is with us, spokesperson for the Ontario Health Coalition. It's difficult to say, okay, Peter, where do we begin in fixing this? Because there are a lot of things that we've heard need repair. But is there anything that can at least help to minimize some of the dangers that exist for people in long-term care if case counts continue to be what they are in Ontario? Over and over again, we've repeated, the government has to take central control, and it can't be just lip service. It has to be a central plan. And they are unfortunately just rolling out things in a piecemeal fashion. Earlier in your show, you were talking about where's the money. Well, we've been actually wondering that too. He announces these millions and millions of added funding, and yet it's so slow to get there, it's not helping anything yet. So get the money rolling, start taking control, be a government for the people, and actually take the people's interest into concern instead of being worried about the for-profit chains. I'd have to tell, I don't know if your listeners know, but we're, we're not even aware of one chain that has been responsible for all this negligent behavior we've heard of having their license revoked. That's shameful. We need to take public control in the name of the public. Well, that's something that we'd love to see happen. Making it happen is something else. If, if you've got a blend of public and private, which we do in long-term care, is that something that presents a challenge, or is that something that, that could be beneficial in any way? Well, we know that we used to, at one time in this province, have a majority of public-run homes. And we actually know that they're the ones that provide better working conditions because tax dollars are used strictly for proper care of individuals. We also know that there's no money being taken for profiteering. We know they're better regulated. We have better schemes for the uh, oversight. So all of that we used to have. And there's absolutely no reason we couldn't go at least back to where we were 30 years ago And then we should enhance it by having actual guaranteed hours of care, which means full-time jobs with well-trained individuals. And we would be on our way to making sure that we can survive this COVID crisis. That would be certainly a a good long-term solution and and something that would likely take a a little while to put into place. I'm not sure how quickly you can get a a central overseer in place in terms of the short term, Peter, is is there anything that you would point to right now that if dollars were being distributed, that would make a difference, that we could actually ensure that people are, are in safe conditions or at least as safe as possible conditions? Well, we know that uh, other governments in Canada have done it in a very short order. B.C. six months ago already stabilize the workforce literally overnight by making them full-time employees of the province. Four months ago, Quebec started a recruitment process that has 10,000 new PSWs added to the field. We only have this piecemeal arrangement where some workers are going to get a little extra money if they are able or eligible. 
we know that's not the way to go. And we know that a government, when it puts its mind to it, can do things literally in a stroke of a pen. So I, I, I would say to you that, uh, no, this is not long-term at all. We could do this now, but there's no political will. Well, we heard NDP London North Centre or London North Centre MPP uh, Terence Kernahan talking about the fact that there is money sitting there, that it, it could be spent, and everybody's wondering, okay, well, what does it take to get that spent? Have you heard any reaction to what took place today at all? Uh, certainly not from the government side. Um, we're definitely hearing, like, healthcare workers are absolutely, you know, pulling their hair out because... They don't feel that this government is really doing anything other than making themselves look good in the public eye. They have waited all summer just to get the very minimum, the pandemic premium that was offered. And now we're hearing that there's only going to be a small amount, even lesser than the pandemic premium per hour. And it's a slap in the face. These are the people that put their lives on the line every day, don't have enough child care. All of their own families are going to risk infection. And yet they go in, they're faced with looking after up to 30 people, 30 residents. You can't give people care with 30 people to look after. That's what's so frustrating to them. They're very angry. And uh, we have to let the rest of Ontario know, no, we have to move forward. This government has to take control. Well, we'll see what does come in the next little while. But, Peter, thank you for raising attention to this because it's something that didn't get enough attention before the pandemic. It certainly has had attention during the pandemic. But as you say, we're not seeing those improvements yet in Ontario that leave us thinking, okay, either when our loved ones are in long-term care or if we ourselves have to be in long-term care, that we are taken care of. And that needs to be something we focus on. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you as well, Mike. That is Peter Bergmanis, spokesperson for the Ontario Health Coalition. As Peter was a part of a number of protests slash information sessions, they were in cars today mostly so that they could keep physically distanced, but that took place in well over 20 cities in Ontario saying, what do we, what do, we do here? And again, this goes back to before the pandemic. And it was just something that couldn't get the voice that it needed. Why? I don't know. Why? Because people in long-term care are sometimes in vulnerable positions, are not able to, because of age or because of illness, not able to make enough noise. Is that what it is? We've always lived in a world where in order to get something done, you've got to be noisy. And that's unfortunate. But when things are noisy, somebody looks over and goes, what's happening over there? Let's make that noise stop. And then things happen. And if we look, long-term care is an integral part of the way our societal fabric works. We have people who contributed throughout their lives and made it so that we can enjoy the things that we do. Our roads are paved. Our garbage is collected. You can name everything. Tax-paying individuals, people making the world better just by what they chose to do with their lives. And then we get to the end of life, and what do we do? We don't take care of things to the same extent that we should. And a big, bright light has been shone on that. And while maybe it's not the noise that it needs to be, 
Humans are attracted to big, bright lights, too. And I hope that this is something that we focus in on. When you look at taking any kind of health care and making it bottom line, this is the same thing that we have talked about when it comes to our medical coverage in Canada versus, say, the United States. We were trying to add up last night in our house. And I, I don't know how this would work, but you may be able to relate to it because you maybe have gone through something very similar. But when my son was younger, he broke his arm really badly, like stay in the hospital for two nights bad and two surgeries bad, that, that kind of a break. And we were talking health care as we watched the vice presidential debate, actually. And he said, what do you think it would have cost if we had to pay for everything that I got when I broke my arm. And you think about that, two nights in hospital, I don't know how many doctor visits, they were worried about compartmental disorder, they were worried about bone infection because it was a compound fracture, they were worried about a lot of things, then they had surgeries to do, then they had a follow-up surgery to do. I don't know, 50 grand? To ballpark it, it would be in the tens of thousands of dollars. You know how much it cost us? Nothing. Except for what we pay in taxes. Nothing. In fact, you could say we got free jello. It's good jello. I like hospital jello. But we we got free jello out of this. And that's what we don't look at with long term care because we allowed private companies to get involved and some of them do it very well. But a private company will always look at the bottom line. And I'm not saying that we get rid of capitalism and and we get rid of privatizing everything but there are certain things you got to be careful with and health care is one of those if you allow too much to become too much about the bottom line you're going to have issues like the ones that we see where you have understaffing where you have care that isn't adequate and now in a pandemic where you have something risking getting inside that well it's been devastating And we don't want it to be devastating again. It's been tragic. We don't want it to be tragic again. So what is going to be done? I'm waiting and I'm listening. And the announcement that I heard today is all fine and well. We're going to get to what that is in two minutes. But it certainly isn't helping out long-term care. It's helping out a private company. When you hear that one of the only ways to bring OHL hockey back this year is to eliminate body contact or at least make it what sport tourism and heritage minister Lisa McLeod called incremental. You start thinking, well, how would that work? Makes for a good topic of conversation, and we get an opportunity to discuss that and other things with OHL broadcaster, TV voice of the Sarnia Sting, and reporter Terry Doyle. And Terry, I was trying to figure out before we started, I was trying to fill in this blank. Terry Doyle has covered every Memorial Cup since, how far back do you go? Uh, well, the last game of the Memorial Cup that was played that I didn't attend was the final in 1999. Everyone this century or millennial, every game I've been at. That's incredible. And you also tweeted this week that you woke up in your own bed on NHL Draft Day for the first time since 2002. You would have been in Montreal in June. 
Yeah, it would have been uh, every draft. The only one now, the little cap there. I should have put an asterisk there where 05, of course, wasn't the real draft because that was the Crosby draft and they just did it. But I was on a vacation in Chicago that week. So that was the only <laughs> other draft day that I didn't wake that I, you know, I didn't wake up in the draft city, but I didn't wake up on my own bed. But yeah, this was the first draft since 02 that I didn't wake up in my own bed ever. Nashville in 03 and kept on going from there. Well, the draft took a while to finish this year, but it's over and done with, and we've seen over 30 Ontario Hockey Leaguers pick. The question is, what is it going to take to get them onto the ice? Number one is always safety, and Terry, that's something that the OHL and really the Canadian Hockey League Major Junior has taken so seriously for so long. That's number one, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, and that's the thing, that as much as the OHL is a business, and the hockey side of it, we've seen, you know, step away from the pandemic, whether it's fighting, whether it's the uh, precautions and then suspensions for injuries and things like that. Dave Branch and the OHL for years have put those uh, things in place to really limit that. And we've seen that. And you've seen it over the years as well, where, you know, certain situations that have happened, there's been heavy punishments and it's all about player safety and the player experience and, uh, you know, step away, no matter the pandemic or not. We've seen that over the years where plays that have been dangerous or result in injuries and put safety at risk have been dealt with. So this is no exception. So if we're to look at, ensuring safety of players but still finding a way for games to go during a pandemic and the parameters that are kind of in place just to keep that safety paramount what did you think when you started hearing and it wasn't just yesterday this has been kind of kicking around for about a week when you heard about the nobody contact might be the route that the OHL would have to go to get the permission to play Yeah, I'm scratching my head over that a little bit, but I'm wondering how that looks because part of it, Mike, I'm thinking is, well, what about at face-offs? What about plays in front of the net? What about battles for pucks along the boards? There is close contact. There's sometimes prolonged contact. You're along the boards for three, four, five, six seconds where a hit is contact, and then you go your separate ways, either because one guy's still standing and the other's on the ice or things like that. So, I'm kind of wondering, and I realize some people hear that and immediately think, oh, my goodness, they're not going to go near each other and everything like that. Well, you know what? Look at Olympic and all levels of women's hockey. That's intense. There is no, quote, unquote, body contact. No, they still hit each other. They still have contact. That's physical. They, they still play a physical game. So if the OHL is being asked to bring it down to, okay, uh, you know, I can use this example, Kelton Hatcher, you can't take a run at a guy. And with a clean, open ice body check, I know London fans don't agree it's clean. I realize that. That's fine. (laughs) But all in all, you look at that where if that's what you're being asked to do, which the question of why, but if that's what the government wants you to put in to get things going, then maybe that's where you go. But beyond that, I still think if you're saying stay away from each other, players, hey, uh, you have to have physical distancing on the ice can't do that and you I mean you can't have face-offs you can't have you know are you going to put it where the crease for example and an area in front of the crease is you go in there and it's immediately stop the play like international or penalties and everything like that there's that line of changing the game and I know the Quebec League put in more severe penalties for fighting and they, they put in the three fight limit that the OHL already has the Quebec League just also added a 10 minute misconduct for fights as well But in the grand scheme of things, I think I'm wondering, what does this actually look like? And on the other side, to put this into minor hockey is one thing. 
where minor hockey, they're not going to be tested, of course, on a regular basis. They're just, you know, average boys and girls playing hockey. In this case, we expect OHL players would be regularly tested, and I think that has to mitigate things to a certain extent because if you have 20 players lining them against 20 players who've all been tested and tested negative in the last 48 hours, that should make a difference. Terry Doyle joining us, OHL broadcaster and reporter. Terry, if we look at the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League as you bring it up, had they come through this past weekend and everything was clear, I don't know that we would be referencing them at all, but we had the blainville Boisbriand with cases among players, among staff members, totaling at last count 18. How closely is the OHL watching, and, and what do you think they're learning from what's happening there? Well, I think you're digging deep to see, okay, what is, you know, where are these outbreaks coming from that we're seeing in the teams? And I think once you see those outbreaks, you know, how do you mitigate that? Or you look at that to say, can you mitigate it in some cases? And we're seeing uh, the Sherbrooke Phoenix now are also seeing an outbreak with their team. So you go back to say, okay, what are the sources of these outbreaks? And is this something that can be mitigated? Or is this just the fact of having players together and not being bubbled, which I don't see that happening in junior hockey, you know, can you work around that? The NHL had to go to a bubble system. The NBA went to a bubble system. And we see the NFL struggling this, with this right now. So, And baseball struggled with it uh, to a certain extent. And now, of course, they've bubbled up for the playoffs. So I think that's what they can really learn from the Quebec League is to go back and say, okay, how is this happening? How is it getting into the team? And then, of course, once it's in the team, is it spreading like wildfire? And we've seen this over the years even you know, not comparing COVID to the flu, but we've seen that if a flu goes into a team, it goes through usually a lot of that team. Well, this is obviously highly contagious as well. So I think at least the, the OHL has the benefit of seeing what the Quebec League has done, either successes or struggles to then mold that rather than being the first one out the gate. I don't think you wanted to be the first one out of the gate. Somebody had to be, and the Quebec League decided to do it. And it'll be interesting. We're seeing this in Quebec. They have the Atlantic bubble, of course, uh, in the Quebec League as well, where the Atlantic teams are staying amongst themselves. We see that in day-to-day life. The Atlantic provinces have their bubble. Will that, you know, will that stay and not you know, pop, for example, and have COVID tests, uh, positive tests happening versus what we're seeing in the province of Quebec? So I think that's going to be very interesting to uh, see how that plays out. And of course, with the OHL, you know, if they're going to try to set up teams in maybe in a month and a half from now, that cities that could be in hot spots like Ottawa is right now, does that even add more concern? Terry Doyle joining us, OHL broadcaster and reporter. If we look at how things would go forward, one of the other things to address, Terry, and before we close out, maybe we can get your thoughts on this. How do you deal with three American teams in the OHL? You even look at the Western Hockey League. There are five American-based teams. They could form their own nice little division, and the border could stay closed, and it would operate very similarly to the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League with their Maritime teams. But the OHL has three American teams. Have you heard anything about how that might be addressed? That one, that's the head-scratcher, I think, to me is how do you manage that? And one idea I've heard bounced around was that, for example, a, an Ontario team would get on their bus, go to, for example, Flint. They are not allowed to get off their bus before they get to the rink. You go to the rink, you go in the rink, you play your game, you get back on that bus, and you go right back across the border. And then there'd still have to be something. Maybe, for example, you're tested as soon as you come back and you quarantine until you come back with a negative test. So the 14-day quarantine isn't in place, but instead it's quarantine until a negative test. That's, 
is there any you know any fire to that any smoke to that i'm not sure whether that would fly i think mike one of the bigger issues too is let's take the fact that how many parents listening to us right now if they had a child in the ohl a child of course a teenager in the ohl would want to send their ontario kid to play in flint sag on our Erie right now so i think that would be a challenge for those teams you look at flint they did not have very many american players last year sarnia had more american players than flint did is that going to be a challenge getting players to go there to play? So, you know, I'm, the idea of staging them in Ontario, of course, has been discussed. They don't look, doesn't look like they want to go down that road. The costs would be huge and just that whole upset from that standpoint. But yeah, I think that's versus the other leagues. You're right. The Western League can have their U.S. division play amongst themselves. And it's not an issue in the Quebec League with the U.S. border travel going in and out. So I think that's one of the biggest things of the OHL is still going to have to, uh, you know, to look at and see how they can overcome that to the satisfaction of the regulatory bodies. So many different things to look at, and you talk about the what would be maybe an opt-out option and, and what players would choose to do that. We saw that in college football for leagues that chose to go ahead. There were players who opted out. They decided, no, this is not in my best interest. And when you're dealing with people who are even younger than NCAA-aged players who normally start at 18, we're dealing with players who go all the way down to 16 and in some rare cases 15 that's uh yeah that's that's something to put yourself in the shoes of those parents terry so much to decide between now and whenever those decisions do have to come but time feels as though it's it's ticking you'd love to be able to either fast forward to see what it looks like in the middle of november when they want to report for training camps or or slow things down so we could have a little bit more time yeah that's exactly it and the other quickly thing is I wonder, okay, if you start the season December 1st, what do you do for Christmas? Do you send everybody back home for Christmas and start over again? And then, you know, we know social gatherings is a spreader in so many things. Of course, Thanksgiving weekend is a hot topic. So I think that's where I really wonder. And you know what, though? Safety is going to be a key. But you have to have a, a date to shoot for. And then maybe if you have to push it back, fine. But, yeah, you know there's so many things that work here. And that's why I give the league credit, actually. You know what? Put out as information you need to. But don't bombard because right now we don't know where things stand. No, that's true. And uh, as much as you say, okay, well, what's happening? What's happening? You just have to trust that whatever's happening is happening inside meeting rooms and is being done by the people who are going to ultimately have to make those final decisions. Terry, thank you so much. Hopefully you are covering a Memorial Cup in a few months, and hopefully the draft is uh, not had to or not watched on a a screen in your living room next year that uh, we can see in both of those spots. Bring on 2021. Can't wait. Terry, thank you. Thanks, Mike. That's Terry Doyle, OHL broadcaster and reporter. And as much as we all keep saying, bring on 2021, somebody said the other day, do we we know something about New Year's Day 2021? What, is there a switch being flipped? Is there a live cam I could watch on a great big switch that's ready to be flipped? No, no, we just keep thinking it can't be worse than 2020, but we may start 2021 with a whole lot of things to still decide and a whole lot of things to still deal with that are very similar to the ones we're dealing with now. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.